chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Gigi, and this is Causality. Causality is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon and through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription. Premium supporters have access to early release, high-quality, ad-free episodes, as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Causality is also a podcasting 2.0-enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis and boost with a message as you listen. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Beirut, Warehouse 12. On Tuesday, the 4th of August, 2020, at 6.08pm local time, an explosion occurred in Beirut that was so intense that it was detected by the US Geological Survey as a 3.3 magnitude seismic event with an estimated 1.1 kiloton equivalent blast. The sound was heard as far away as Cyprus, 240 kilometres or 150 miles away, and it was felt through parts of the Middle East and Europe. The chain of events that led to this took place over nearly seven years, and relates to a compound called ammonium nitrate. So where do we begin? Ammonium nitrate is not generally referred to as an explosive, but rather as an oxidizer, as it can be used for agriculture as a fertilizer, but also by the mining industry, where it's mixed with other agents and becomes a tertiary explosive. A tertiary explosive that uses ammonium nitrate, that is very common, is ANFO, ammonium nitrate fuel oil, where the fuel oil used is often just regular diesel fuel. The mixture is then put in position, usually in a hole for blasting. Then a detonator is used to trigger the explosion. Hence, detonator plus fuel oil plus ammonium nitrate equals explosive. And that's why it's often referred to as a tertiary explosive. When manufactured, it's generally produced in small round balls they call prills, leading to the common name by Orica of nitroprill. In its raw form, ammonium nitrate won't self-combust. However, it must be stored in a dry environment away from other ignition sources, combustible materials, and contaminants. Let's talk a little bit about the event. The event itself, or the most likely trigger event perhaps, started several days earlier when the electrical contracting company that had handled electrical maintenance at the port for three decades had been brought in to repair several doors of Warehouse 12, amongst other things. The repairs took several days, and on the fourth day, Tuesday the 4th of August 2020, they were repairing doors 3 and 11 of Warehouse 12 using a welder. They concluded works on Warehouse 12 at approximately 4pm, then proceeded to another part of the port for further works and left site at approximately 5pm that day. At 5.54pm, a video was uploaded to Twitter showing smoke coming from the northeast corner of Warehouse 12, approximately near doors 5 and 6 and bays 1 and 2. Within a minute of this post, the local 7th Division firefighters were alerted both by the security forces and citizens on the street nearby and dispatched to the port. At approximately 5.56pm, there was an explosion in the warehouse, though the structure had remained intact at that point, forming a thick grey cloud column of smoke now rising from the warehouse. At 5.59pm, firefighters arrived at Warehouse 12 and reported hearing sounds of fireworks going off randomly from within the warehouse, which was now well ablaze. At 6pm exactly, the colour of the smoke changed to a darker colour, which was most likely from a stack of tyres being stored in the warehouse. By 6.07pm, the smoke plume had intensified to the point where fighting the blaze was becoming impossible as the heat was too intense, with fireworks now going off at a great intensity on the northwest side of the warehouse. 
and at 6.08pm, the primary explosion occurred, which was well captured by many onlookers both close by and distant. The explosion was spherical and expanded rapidly, and due to the humidity in the air, a condensation cloud ring, sometimes called a Wilson cloud, appeared around the fireball from the explosion. Cloud rings like this are caused by the negative pressure period, as the hot air from the fireball rises, creating a low-pressure zone, drawing in fresh air into the rising plume, and this reduces the density of the air surrounding it. Since the air is near its dew point, as the pressure drops, water vapour condenses instantaneously, and then as the air pressure equalises, it dissolves back into the air mass again and disappears just as quickly. Within seven seconds of the explosion, a dark red smoke cloud resembling a mushroom in shape had reached 750 metres above the surface. The nearest hospital was only 850 metres from the point of the explosion, which caused so much damage that they had to evacuate all 332 patients and were then unable to function effectively from a temporary triage area set up outside the emergency room at street level outside. Four nurses were killed and the many injured people went instinctively to the hospital as it was the closest medical care available and the temporary field hospital was quickly overwhelmed. Car alarms and building security alarms rang endlessly through the streets as a grey dust and glass shards settled on buildings, cars and the street itself. Glass windows had been shattered up to 10 kilometres or 6 miles from the source of the blast. The debris on many of the city streets was so bad, functioning vehicles still couldn't drive on them. The next nearest hospital that some had managed to walk to wasn't in much better shape. Initially, and given Lebanon's proximity to Israel, it was thought to have been a missile attack. Many locals held their breath and waited for a second strike, as they had become accustomed in recent wars. But as the dust settled, they realised this was something very different. There was no radar evidence, no video evidence of a missile, and it was denied by the Israeli government. The cause of the fire that triggered the explosion was most likely to have come from the nearby welding activity. However, there was also a suggestion the fire started in Warehouse 9 and spread to 12, but no specifics on how the Warehouse 9 fire started either. Due to the size of the explosion, the lack of witnesses, the lack of video footage prior to 5.54pm, there's currently no publicly available information to determine the true source of the fire that led to the explosion. Speaking of officials and public for a moment, in the hours that followed the explosion, there was no government support, no assistance, no guidance, nothing. People were left to fend for themselves, with hospitals helping wherever they could. The clearing of rubble done by those that weren't severely injured that had survived, using their bare hands. The final death toll is unclear, however, it is estimated to be at least 218, with over 7,000 people injured. The explosion caused an estimated 15 billion US dollars in damage and left over 300,000 people homeless. The grain elevator adjacent to the warehouse that contained nearly 85% of the country's grain stocks has about half of its structure still barely standing, but is no longer functional and the explosion created a 140-metre, that's 460-feet-wide, blast crater, now mostly filled by seawater from the port. The explosion was so large it has been classified as the third most devastating single urban environment explosion in history, third only to the bombs dropped at the end of World War II on the Japanese cities of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. There have been many investigations of various levels of repute, and many of them struggled to definitively determine the facts since so many facts remain unknown. 
Either the evidence was destroyed by the blast, or there has not been enough access to critical information and personal testimony of those involved, sometimes for political or legal reasons. It's anything but straightforward. Let's talk about a little bit about the domestic investigation. On the 10th of August 2020, the government referred the investigation to the Judicial Council, who is a special court whose decisions are not subject to appeal by law. It's reserved for the cases that are considered especially serious, though can only have cases assigned to it by a cabinet decree and recommendation from the Justice Minister. The Higher Judicial Council, HJC, approves the appointment of a judicial investigator by the Justice Minister, and that investigator then leads the Judicial Council. The investigator, in this case was Judge Fadi Sawan, then issues the indictment before the case is referred to trial. The HAC consists of 10 people, of which 8 are appointed by the government, whose actions were potentially under investigation, and hence lacked independence, both individually and the HJC funding itself also came directly from the government. Sawan brought charges against 37 people in total, detaining 25 initially, though these were a mixture of customs, port and security officials, as well as employees of the electrical contracting company involved with the welding repairs. When Sawan included in a letter to Parliament in November 2020 requesting further investigation into 12 current and former ministers, the Speaker of the Parliament dismissed all of the allegations and refused to act. Ministers have legal immunity and can only be prosecuted by a Supreme Council for trying President and Ministers. The Council requires a two-thirds vote in Parliament for this to be formed. Unsurprisingly, this has never occurred at any point in history. Having failed, Sawan charged caretaker Prime Minister Hassan Diab and three former ministers, Ghazi Zaita, Ali Hassan Khalil, Yosef Fanianos, with criminal negligence related to the blast. Diab, Zaita, Fanianos and Khalil refused to appear for questioning. The caretaker Interior Minister, Mohammed Fahmi, said that he would not ask the security forces to arrest them even if warrants were issued. On the 18th of February 2021, Judge Fadi Sawan was removed from the case on suspicion of a lack of impartiality, based in part due to disrespect of parliamentary immunity, but also in part due to his receiving 13 million Lebanese pounds in compensation as his home was damaged in the explosion. That's about 8,600 US dollars. And that wasn't uncommon with thousands of damaged homes in Beirut at that point. The newly appointed judge didn't get any further, really. I mean, I could go on, but you get the idea. The Federal Bureau of Investigation performed its own investigation after being invited to Beirut by Lebanese authorities, which sought to determine a more precise quantity of ammonium nitrate that exploded and whether it was likely to have been intentional or unintentional. Their conclusion was that a total of 552 tonnes of ammonium nitrate contributed to the blast, with the remaining 2,198 tonnes either remained non-combusted or absent entirely, stating... And I quote, it is not logical that all of them were present at the time of the explosion. End quote. Various officials during the investigation had suggested that much of the ammonium nitrate had actually been stolen in the six years it had been present in Warehouse 12. Having said that, the report's findings have been heavily disputed based on the size of the blast radius and damage incurred relative to other known blasts of a similar magnitude. Either way, the FBI investigation was not as extensive as some of the others. In the days following the explosion, the French forensic police attended Beirut as well and left a few weeks later. Whilst they submitted their report to Lebanese officials, to date, their results have not been publicly released. Forensic architecture also did an analysis. 
They are a research agency based at Goldsmiths at the University of London and were invited to investigate by Madamas, a media organisation based in Egypt, and put all of their findings online for public consumption. They used publicly available information, including 3D maps of the city, and correlated the video footage taken of the event to accurately trace back the location of the explosion and each of the smoke plumes leading up to the explosion. They assumed, without any other definitive evidence, that the entire quantity of ammonium nitrate was present, as the photo evidence publicly available did not show over the top of the bags seen from that camera angle. The video they produced was instructive and helps visualise what happened. There's a link in the show notes. It goes for 12 minutes and well worth a look. So where do we begin? On the 19th of November 2013, a cargo ship called the Rosas arrived in Beirut carrying approximately 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate. On the manifest, uh, it was bound for Mozambique, where the ammonium nitrate was to be delivered to a Mozambique explosives maker, Fabrica de Explosivos. Specifically, it was high-density ammonium nitrate, nitropril HD in 1,000 kilogram flexible intermediate bulk containers, or FIBC, bags. Manufactured by Rostavi Azot LCC of Georgia, the country in the Middle East that borders with Turkey, northeast of Lebanon. The technical data sheet describes nitropril HD as a, and I quote, security-sensitive material consisting of a low-density porous white to off-white prilled grade of ammonium nitrate. NH4NO3 ammonium nitrate composed of 99% ammonium nitrate with a total nitrogen mass of 34%. End quote. The MSDS states, that's Material Safety Data Sheet, nitropril storage requirements should be kept dry away from any ignition or heat sources and stored in areas that are well ventilated. End quote. What we know about the warehouse comes mostly from external imagery of the building, from map views and such, and the bulk of the information about what was inside the warehouse comes from a series of photos taken in the months prior to the explosion. Leaked photographs taken in January 2020 and first published by the New York Times, as well as a video taken on the 18th of December 2019 by news outlet Al-Jadid, remain our best known information about what was stored inside the warehouse, though its contents could have been changed in the intervening months. The photos and video clearly show torn bags with leaking ammonium nitrate powder being clearly contaminated on the ground, and using these, along with content from local media stories, the forensic architecture investigators created a rough layout of what was likely being stored in Warehouse 12 leading up to the explosion. Approximately 1,000 tyres in Bay 3 between doors 4 and 5 at the northeast corner, approximately 23 tonnes of fireworks in Bay 2 near door 7, on the northwest corner, approximately 2,750 tonnes of ammonium nitrate, taking up bays 5 through 9 and covering doors 3, 4 and 9. Other items were present, but in unknown locations. Approximately 50 tonnes of ammonium phosphate, approximately 5 tonnes of tea and coffee, approximately 5 rolls of slow-burning detonator cord. Let's talk a little bit about regulations first. Lebanese regulations about storing dangerous goods aren't specific in the area in question, so let's look at some other country standards instead. We'll start with Australia. In Australia, ammonium nitrate in different forms is collectively referred to as security-sensitive ammonium nitrates, or SSANs for short. A license is required for storing any quantity greater than 3 kilograms under the explosives regulations for performing anything from buying and selling, transporting, manufacturing, and of course, storing it. Without going through the entire safety notice, suffice it to say it covers minimum distance from populated areas, facility security requirements, separation from other chemicals, and lots more. This sentence about fire prevention is key, and I quote, 
the probability of a fire and an explosion is very low if stringent attention is paid to good housekeeping and fire prevention. End quote. In the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency released an advisory, Safe Storage, Handling and Management of Ammonium Nitrate, and it states, and I quote, Protect piles of ammonium nitrate from absorbing moisture from humid air by covering them with water impermeable sheeting or by using air conditioning. End quote. It's strange that it's carried in bags, though the intent is for short-term storage during transport, not long-term storage, I suppose. It goes on to say, and I quote, Dust-producing organic materials, such as grain, seeds, and sugar, should not be stored near ammonium nitrate. Some metal powders, such as aluminium powder, are equally dangerous. Ammonium nitrate should be stored so as to ensure it is not contaminated by gasoline, diesel, or other fuels, and is not subject to high heat, even in one small area of a large stockpile or water infiltration. End quote. The problem with contamination from any of those items is it makes ammonium nitrate up to four times more susceptible to an explosive reaction, which I'll explain shortly. Other parts of the world have similar regulations for strict handling and storage coupled with licensing and inspection regimes. So now let's talk a little bit about contamination. A report on Orica, Kuragang Island by the consulting company GHD stated the following, and I quote, Heated ammonium nitrate will decompose and release vapors, which, if confined, leads to increased pressure and greater sensitivity to detonation. While the pressure required is 80 atmospheres, this can be reduced by the presence of contaminants. This can reduce the pressure required for detonation to 20 atmospheres. End quote. When we talk about atmospheres with explosives, it refers to atmospheres of pressure. One standard atmosphere is at 101.325 kilopascals, so 20 atmospheres is about 2 megapascals and 80 atmospheres is about 8.1 megapascals. So you can roughly take the number of atmospheres, divide by 10, and that is the pressure roughly in megapascals. So ultimately, the questions here are, was the ammonium nitrate likely to have been contaminated by moisture, being, what, 30 metres, about 100 feet from the water, with an average summer temperature of more than 30 degrees Celsius, that's 86 Fahrenheit? I think definitely, after six years of storage there, that's a given. Was the ammonium nitrate at least partially contaminated by powder from the grain elevator that was only 40 metres, that's 130 feet away? Well, the warehouse wasn't very well sealed, and between prevailing wind direction at some times of the year, loading and unloading of the grain, there's little doubt in my mind that the warehouse would have had grain dust infiltrated many, many times. Were the bags of ammonium nitrate covered in any kind of protective material? No. The photos taken of the months prior show a haphazardly stacked collection of partly slumped bags strewn all over the place. Many of them were partly opened and exposed. A definite no. Finally, let's talk about confined spaces. One of the things that makes storing some materials in confined spaces dangerous is that it allows the temperature and pressure to increase under a fire scenario. This is basic physics. The ideal gas law is PV equals nRT, where P is pressure, V is volume, N is Avogadro's number, R is our gas constant, and T is the temperature. Well, that's nice, isn't it? But it's more useful when we do some algebra and determine that the balanced equation, eliminate the constants, gives us P1 V1 over T1 equals P2 V2 over T2. That's the so-called combined gas law. Therefore, if the volume of a confined space remains constant, as temperature increases, the pressure increases as well. In this case, all it took was the nearby fireworks fire to increase the temperature enough, and a byproduct of fireworks, like metal filings, likely would have further contaminated and further destabilized the ammonium nitrate. 
then, as a highly unstable bag or part of a bag hit that critical pressure of 20 atmospheres, it started rapidly decomposing and a small explosion which then kicked the local pressure up in milliseconds and the significant amount of it went off in an enormous chain reaction. The plant director from Rastavi Azot stated that the decision to store the ammonium nitrate in Warehouse 12 was, and I quote, a gross violation of safe storage measures, end quote. Done with physics for a bit? Okay, let's get back to the boat. The boat wasn't originally intended to stop in Beirut. There are two versions as to why it did, with the first being that an order came in from the owner of the boat to take on an unplanned load of heavy machinery in Beirut, then deliver it to Aqaba in Jordan, on their way to the Suez Canal. The other version is that the ship encountered technical problems due to its poor state of repair, and it was forced to enter the port of Beirut as it was the closest port at that time. Whichever the reason, once it was in port, a decision was taken to attempt to take on a load of heavy machinery. However, when the machinery was stacked on top of the cargo doors on the ship, it caused them to buckle, and they stopped loading as a result. This began a legal dispute with the port regarding port fees, which led to authorities impounding the vessel, and it ended up being for 11 months. The ship itself was not very well maintained, and whilst it was considered to be seaworthy when it entered the port initially, it ended when the ship was judged to be unseaworthy with an inspection finding, and I quote, significant flaws in the ship hull, end quote. The port seized control of the Rosas on the 4th of February 2014 due to a claimed 100000 US dollars of unpaid fees that had climbed due to prolonged time in port, as well as refusing, or in this case being unable, to take the heavy machinery cargo many, many months before. The remaining crew that had been trapped on the vessel due to immigration left the vessel and returned home, and letters were lodged to the courts stating concerns about the ammonium nitrate being kept on the impounded craft, on the basis the ship was no longer seaworthy. By the 13th of November 2014, the ammonium nitrate was all offloaded at the port, following a judicial order to unload the cargo into Warehouse 12, pending another overriding judicial decision to determine how to remove the ammonium nitrate, then from the warehouse. The chief of the peers at the time agreed that Warehouse 12 was a safe place to store them. On the 27th of June 2014, the director of Lebanese Customs at that time, Shafiq Meri, sent a letter to an urgent matters judge asking for a solution to what to do with the ammonium nitrate. Subsequent customs officials sent five more known letters. On the 5th of December 2014, the 6th of May 2015, the 20th of May 2016, the 13th of October 2016, and the 27th of October 2017, each asking for direction and reiterating a warning that the material posed a danger. Some of the letters made suggestions including export the material, hand it over to the Lebanese army, or sell it to a privately owned Lebanese explosives company. In other words, do something with it. One of the letters sent in 2016 stated, and I quote, in view of the serious danger of keeping these goods in the hangar in unsuitable climactic conditions, we affirm our request to please request the Marine Agency to re-export these goods immediately to preserve the safety of the port and those working in it, or to look into agreeing to sell this amount. End quote. In 2015, Mr. Hassan Ritan issued a report about the contents of Warehouse 12 to the Minister of Public Health, then to the Secretary to the Council of Ministers, that went nowhere. In February 2018, the Rosas itself sank, where she was moored in Beirut Harbour, though all of her contents had already been removed at that point. We've now reached 2019, 
and Captain Joseph Nadaf was selected by the Agency for State Security to take over the Port Authority in 2019 with the remit to address any corruption therein, with 10 soldiers to support him. In October 2019, he was informed about the ammonium nitrate in Warehouse 12 and could only spare one person for an investigation. The report he submitted stated that there was a vast quantity of ammonium nitrate stored in Warehouse 12 that was very dangerous, and not only could be used to make explosives, but if it caught fire, could destroy the port of Beirut. He reported his findings initially on the 6th of December 2019 to the Ministry of Public Works and Transport. They forwarded the report to the Ministry of Justice, who then submitted the report to a commission of judges, which serves as the legal department for the state. They requested lawyers to issue orders to approve their removal from the warehouse to a place somewhere outside of Lebanon. However, those orders were never sent. Following the explosion, then-Major Joseph Nadaf was held in jail, along with many others, without specific charge, but in relation to the explosion. Let's talk a bit about the aftermath. Prime Minister Hassan Diab resigned on the 10th of August 2020, and Lebanon still has no formalised government. Major Joseph Nadaf was released from pre-trial detention on the 15th of April 2021. At the time of recording, finding information on any legislative changes in Lebanon as a result of this incident remains difficult, but if we're hoping for something positive to come out of this, there are examples of other countries taking note. In New Delhi, the Indian Express reported that in September 2021, their government amended existing legislation now requiring ammonium nitrate received at ports to be transferred to storage houses at least 500 metres beyond the port area. In addition, the changes permitted the auction of seized ammonium nitrate and pushed for faster disposal. The people of Lebanon have begun the slow process of rebuilding what's left of the city of Beirut. At the time of recording, no officials have been prosecuted in relation to this incident. The documentary, Beirut Blast, the story of Warehouse 12, is worth watching. I found a link where you could see it. It's a confronting, emotional documentary that's difficult to watch. It's well worth a watch. So what do we conclude from all of this? Firstly, this is not a show about the politics in the Middle East or anything regarding Syria, Lebanese governments, and not about conspiracy theories either. But in the absence of any internationally recognized, formally accepted investigation, it's hard to not acknowledge, should we say, highly divided priorities of those people in charge leading up to the explosion. I could talk about the government, its structure and whatnot, but that wouldn't change anything. The lessons to be learned from this incident, for me at least, lay around the need for education and regulation. I hear from time to time about how some countries have become nanny states and that we've become too regulated. For some things, some freedoms, this may be true in some places, but for storage of dangerous goods, the regulations are there to prevent explosions like this from occurring, or if they do, to prevent loss of life as a result. And these lessons have been learned before. The whole world over this isn't new. Or then maybe it is for some people. When I drive past a truck hauling a liquid and there's a sign on the side saying something like it's carrying sodium hypochlorite, I remember the time that I spilt sodium hypochlorite on my work clothes and my skin and it burned and within days my clothing disintegrated. I remember that very clearly. The average person driving past that truck might think sodium hyper what a lot? What's that for? Maybe they just think, oh, that's a truck. The point is, it's about education, about teaching as many people as we can what dangerous goods are and ask the question, is it safe to keep them here in this way? 
and if that's the best we can do, then that's the best we can do. And if enough people ask the right questions and through that education recognize the danger, then that can lead to a change and prevent an incident from occurring. Now, those tertiary explosives arrived there in 2013. People coming and going had years to ask the question, is that safe to be stored there? And they did. There were reports, experts doing walkthroughs, even even military personnel were put in a position to flush out problems at the port. And despite all of that, everyone pushed the papers along the desk, but no one took a decisive action. Now, it's possible that there were strings being pulled high up. Yes, that's possible, but it's equally possible that the people in those high-up positions receiving those letters just saw them, didn't believe that the risk was real, or didn't understand the risks, and just let those warnings sit on the bottom of a stack of paper. They had other things to worry about. I mean, if you knew the real risks of storing that stuff, would you just, you know, switch to working through your budget spreadsheet? The people high up, they were walking, driving past, a literal ticking time bomb, multiple times a week. It was their city. It was their neighbourhood too. So Occam's Razor says, no, they wouldn't ignore it if they knew. I think they really didn't understand what they had in front of them. I think they really, really didn't understand just how dangerous it was because if they did, there's no way they would have let that slide for six years. No way known. The ignorance of the people responsible, to me, is the most likely cause. People in positions of authority are regularly asked to make decisions about things they don't understand, which is why expert panels develop standards and regulations to follow, and those in this case were also limited. Whilst there have been some calls to eliminate the use of ammonium nitrate globally, that will take time and good alternatives, and until then we need to ensure people better understand that every material is required to have an MSDS, that's a material safety data sheet. And they need to learn what the risks are when it's stored, when it's transported, when it's used. So educate yourself. Ask questions. And remember that ignorance is only bliss until something goes horrifically wrong. And then it isn't anymore. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can by becoming a premium supporter. You can find details at engineer.network slash causality about how you can help this show to continue to be made. A big thank you to all of our supporters and a special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, Leslie Law-Chan, Shane O'Neill, Hafthor, Jared, Bill, Joel Maher and Katharina Will. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal and our gold producer known only as R. Causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. There's details on how along with the Boostergram leaderboard on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineer.space, on Twitter at John Chigi or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thank you so much for listening.